You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, Asbury. As you just heard, I am new to the university. Very pleased to be here. Originally, I'm from Minnesota, but I've spent the last 16 years in Ohio. So how many other folks who are here are from Ohio? Yeah! OH! Yeah! I'm so happy to hear that. If you've lived in Ohio at all, as you've just seen by that demonstration, you cannot escape hearing about the Ohio State University, right? Well-renowned for its athletics teams, but also very well-renowned for its marching band. How many of you have ever been in marching band in high school? A few of you. Anybody care to venture a guess what I played in marching band in high school? No guesses. Clarinet. I was a clarinet player in marching band. So I have a great deal of respect for these kinds of halftime shows that are so intricate. Now, you know, it's one of those things when you're in a marching band, sometimes when you do these halftime shows, you have really weird steps. You know, you might, you might march a couple steps forward, and then you pivot, and you march a couple steps. Maybe you march in place. And yet, when you all do it together as the body, you can come up with that kind of an amazing sort of a halftime show. And so well, I think what is so incredible about this is the individuals working together to make a unified picture that is greater than any one of them could do individually. And the Apostle Paul, when he is writing his letter to the Ephesians, he sort of acts like a marching band director. He's choreographing the halftime show. He gives his final instructions to the church so that they can withstand the evil day, and once everything is said and done, to remain standing. And so he gives all of these directions on how to do it. And so today we are going to look at his instructions of those things that are necessary to remain standing after all is said and done. The body, the armor, and the power. Let's look at scripture. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day, and after you have done everything possible, to still stand. So stand with the belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate, and put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Offer prayers and petitions in the Spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. As for me, pray that when I open my mouth, I'll get a message that confidently makes this secret plan of the gospel known. I'm an ambassador in chains for the sake of the gospel. Pray so that the Lord will give me the confidence to say what I have to say. Before we get into the specifics of this passage, we need to look at the overall context of the letter. And if any of you are in my introduction to New Testament class, what do you know about context? Context is... Everything! Thank you, absolutely. Context is everything. 
Paul is writing to the Ephesians to remind them of their identity in Christ, their unity as a body of believers, regardless of any kind of ethnic differences, and to encourage them to live in a way that honors God. And so the book is roughly split in half. The first three chapters of the book are about the blessings of our life in Christ and how we have been saved by grace through faith. And the last three chapters then really describe how we are to live as a result of that truth. I mean, when something amazing happens in your life, you live differently as a result of what has just occurred. And so that's the picture we have here. For the last two weeks in chapel, we have been fleshing out these ideas. And so when we were in chapter one, Dr. Brian Shelton compared the power of God in the heavenlies to the chaos down below and our ability to conquer the chaos through the mighty power of God. Then when we looked at Ephesians 2, Chaplain Jeannie Banter told us how God has broken down the walls that divide us. And then we have built up a new foundation in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, Dr. Sarah Baldwin urged us to recognize that our primary identity is in Christ. We are strengthened by the power of God to begin to know how immeasurable the love of God is for us. In chapter 4, Reverend Esther Jadav helped us to see how Paul calls us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And so we treat one another with compassion and kindness and forgiveness. And then in chapter 5, Chaplain Greg Hasselhoff encouraged us to submit to one another, to build up one another out of reverence for Christ. But before we jump into chapter 6 today, we need to recognize an important aspect of this letter. When we read the instructions in the letter, we hear, you do this, and what do we think? Well, we think about me individually, right? But it's one of the things about English language that doesn't translate from the Greek very well. In the Greek, when Paul uses the word you, I'm going to use a Kentucky term, he means all y'all, right? It's the plural version of you. So these commands that we receive in the letter, as much as individual believers, we do need to follow these commands, of course, there's a, a sense here in which this is more corporate and more communal, that Paul is saying the body of Christ, all y'all need to work together to do these things. We need to encourage one another as the body of Christ. And that is true throughout the entire letter. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 10. Paul, as he is concluding this letter, he is urging the believers to be strong in the mighty strength of God. But that's not a new theme. He's not just sort of all of a sudden saying, hey, let's think about the strength. He's actually come full circle. In the very beginning of Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul told the Ephesians that he prays that they might come to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. And I think that's an important reminder, especially as we begin to enter this discussion about the evil powers that comes next. We do not rely on our own strength. I mean, having a correct source of power is really important. You've got to have the right source. So if you think about maybe driving a really fast race car, maybe your favorite kind of sports car, for me, it would be a Ford Mustang convertible. Anybody else Ford Mustangs? Pretty cool, right? Now, if I'm going to drive a car like that in my wildest dreams, if I had a car like that, I'm going to put in the absolute best premium gasoline. You can't just pour water in a gas tank and expect that it's going to run well, right? 
And so that's the picture here, is that we need to have the correct source of power for our Christian lives. We simply can't do it on our own. It's not enough. It's not what we need. If we're going to have strength for the battle ahead, we have to rely on God's power. And Paul is very emphatic about this. He repeats the idea of strength three times in that one verse. Literally, strengthen yourselves in the power, or the strength, of his strength. Strengthen yourselves with the strength of his strength. Paul is making sure that we get that message. And of course, the reason that we need that strength is because the battle that lies ahead is a difficult one. We have to put on the full armor of God because it is the only way to withstand the evil day. And so in verses 11 to 12, Paul makes it clear that we are not simply battling everyday circumstances, everyday temptations, but rather there are powerful forces that exist in the world, and they make every effort to derail our walk with God. Paul describes them as rulers and authorities, and he's not talking about government rulers. He's talking about demonic spirits, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He understands that there is a spiritual realm populated by hostile forces that are in opposition to the work of God. Now, his point in, in sort of listing out these forces is not to give us a category of demons, and he doesn't want us to get caught up in, well, what's the difference between this and that and the other thing? Instead, he is being emphatic that we recognize that the battles that we face have a strong spiritual component as well. But when he describes them as powers in the heavenly places, for the Ephesians who have been listening carefully as this letter has been read to them, they're going to think, oh, heavenly places, where have I heard that before? They've heard it in chapter 1, verse 3. We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, Christ sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And the implication is far above every ruler and power and dominion. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, verse 10 the plan of the mystery of God has been revealed so that through the church, the wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul is urging us to be prepared to fight these forces, but he's saying, why should we be afraid? Why should we be afraid? Because everything that Paul has said to this point reminds us that Christ's power is far greater than any other spiritual power. And we who believe are seated with Christ far above these lesser powers. Our transformed lives and the unity of the body of Christ serve as testimonies to these spiritual beings that the victory has already been won. So after digressing on this point about who we are fighting and the ultimate defeat of these spiritual forces, Paul returns to this call to the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God in verses 13 through 17. Now, traditionally, these next few verses are read as that call for the individual believer to put on these individual pieces of armor. But again, we need to remember that what Paul has already told us in this letter, Paul has told us earlier who it is that is the body 
that wears the armor. In 122 to 23, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The armor is effective when the whole body takes it up. This is not a fight that we are meant to do on our own as individual believers in my individual faith, but it is the body of Christ that wears these pieces of armor. We are more effective when we work together. Just like the OSU band, right? You can do these little weird steps and it might look kind of weird, but when you're doing it as a whole group and you work together, you can come up with the strength and the power that you need. That's the picture here. It is the body of Christ that wears the armor. And so Paul uses this military imagery to illustrate the idea of preparing for battle. And yet all of these pieces of armor, save one, are meant for defense. This is defensive weaponry. Because it's not us going out to wage the battle. It is the devil who brings the war to us. And our job is to stand our ground, to stand firm, and to remain standing. Now, we've had a lot of hurricanes this year. I've lost count of how many hurricanes we've had. In fact, they've started naming hurricanes with using Greek letters because we've run out of uh, the regular alphabet to name storms. But I'm always struck by the news reporters who go out. I think they're crazy. They go out into the middle of the hurricane, and they have to stand with their microphone and their reporting, and there are 70-plus mile-an-hour winds that are bashing against them and waves that are crashing over them, and they're standing there like this. And they think, well, I've got a job to do. And so they find a way to stand firm. Sometimes they tether themselves to railings or they have, you know, their cameraman has, you know, got a rope on them so they don't blow away. They find a way to stand firm. That's their job. And that's the picture that Paul is giving us here is that we need to find a way to stand firm in the battle. But New Testament scholar Andrew Lincoln reminds us the decisive victory in this battle has already been won by God in Christ. The task of believers is not to win, but to stand. That is, to preserve and maintain what has already been won. And yet, we shouldn't think that we're always battling a hurricane, right? What's described here is, is the schemes of the devil. The devil is wily, the devil is tricky, and sometimes it is that hurricane barrage of terrible things that happen in our lives. And we recognize, this is awful and I need to find some way, Jesus, help me to stand. But sometimes it's not the hurricane. Sometimes it's the little bit of mist that comes in. It's the fog that clouds our vision and suddenly we lose sight of God and little things start tripping us. The devil's wily. Sometimes it's a hurricane, but sometimes the fog can be just as deadly as the hurricane. So either way, hurricane or mist, we need to find a way to stand firm. And so the first two pieces of armor that we are given are the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, or the breastplate of justice. The term that is used there can mean either justice or righteousness. And in terms of Roman armor, which is what Paul's readers would be thinking of, the belt is actually more of a reference to the leather apron that is worn underneath the other pieces of armor. And so this heavy leather then would be something that would protect, especially protect soldiers' thighs when they are in the middle of battle. So it's really more of an apron than a belt that is used here. 
And the metal breastplate, of course, would cover the soldier's vital organs, their heart, their lungs, and so on. When Paul refers to the belt of truth, truth here really has the sense of faithfulness or loyalty to God. And the breastplate of justice has the nuance of doing what is just or right. I think sometimes we think of righteousness and we're like, I, I am being righteous. But it really has this sense of action, doing justice, doing righteousness. And Paul does not pull this imagery out of thin air. These pieces of armor are mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. In one case, a messianic figure brings righteousness and faithfulness to those who suffer, particularly the poor. And in the second case, God is offended at the lack of justice in the land, and so God himself brings righteousness and justice to the people. Paul uses this imagery to describe how the church, the body of Christ, you and me, must wear that same armor to fight its battles. The warrior God is a God who cares about righteousness in the land, that is, justice for the poor. When we wear God's armor, we also are to demonstrate God's justice and righteousness. And Paul has already said this in a different way in Ephesians 4.24 when he called upon the Ephesians to clothe yourselves, put on the armor, clothe yourselves with the new self created according to the likeness of God. We imitate God in true righteousness and holiness. Here in Hughes Auditorium, we see that phrase, holiness unto the Lord, displayed prominently. It serves as a reminder that we are called to be a people that are set apart for the Lord. We don't live the way that the world lives, but rather we imitate Christ and we offer every aspect of our lives to the Lord. We seek personal holiness in our own lives, and we work in the midst of culture to transform the injustices that we witness around us. Connected to this idea of righteousness is the imagery of shoes, putting on shoes that prepare one to present the gospel of peace. We've got to be ready to present the gospel of peace. And Paul has already spoken in Ephesians about this gospel of peace in a couple of places, but certainly in 2, 14 through 16, he declared that Christ is our peace who destroyed the wall of hostility, the ethnic rivalry between Jew and Gentile, making all believers one in Christ. Our unity is a testimony of this peace. It's interesting that Isaiah, again, connects righteousness with peace in chapter 32, 17. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. When Christians are faithful to God, they live rightly. They live in a way that brings justice to the community, and this brings peace. It certainly has been a common refrain these days to hear protesters chanting, no justice, no peace. This is a biblical theme. This is not something that was created in the 1960s, but this is a theme that comes straight out of Isaiah. It is only when justice pervades the land that peace will exist among us. We must work for justice for those who have been wronged, whether demanding justice for Breonna Taylor or providing aid to the poor in our community who have been overlooked or arguing for the rights of those with disabilities or any other in society who we see who is in need of our help. When we provide justice, we are imitating the God that we serve. 
Next, Paul calls on the believers to take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, Roman shields measured about four foot tall and about two and a half foot wide, and they were made of wood, and then they were covered with a stretched leather, and the leather actually did help to extinguish flaming arrows that were shot at the soldiers. And so Paul identifies what this shield is for Christians. It is the shield of faith. When we are trusting the message of the gospel, when we believe that Christ died for our sins, when we understand that our lives are transformed by the Holy Spirit, that is the faith, that is the shield that we wield against the attacks of the devil. Because the devil tries to tell us that we're not worthy, we can't change, and we have no future. But the gospel tells us otherwise. But there's more to this imagery than simply holding up the shield of faith to stand firm. Roman soldiers worked together in formation. They brought their shields together in battle so that they could literally protect one another from flaming arrows. And so this is actually called the testudo formation. It's a Latin word that means tortoise. And you can see from this picture, it really does look like a tortoise shell. So the soldiers who were in the front would hold their shields up to protect the front. The soldiers who were in the middle would hold their shields up over the heads of the other soldiers to form that barrier against the flaming arrows. And the soldiers on the side would hold the shields up on the side. And so it really was like a tortoise shell that protected all of the soldiers. Soldiers were far better protected when they worked together. And this underscores that all-y'all language I was talking about just a few minutes ago. Paul wants us to understand that we must work together as the church, the body of Christ, to wear the armor. It's the body, the body of Christ, that wears this armor. John Wesley proclaimed that he knew no holiness but social holiness, by which he meant we don't achieve this holiness on our own. It is as we work together, as we encourage one another, that we can strengthen one another. And sometimes Christians kind of fight against this idea. Once the great 19th century evangelist, Dwight Moody, was visiting a prominent Chicago businessman, and he was trying to convince this businessman why he needed to, to join the church and become a member of the church. And the man said, you know what, I can be just as good of a Christian outside the church as I can be inside of it. And so Dwight Moody said absolutely nothing, but he walked over to the blazing fire in the fireplace, and he took the tongs, and he pulled out one blazing red coal, and he set it on the edge of the hearth. And he said nothing, but they sat back, and together they watched while that one blazing red coal fairly quickly turned to soot and cold ash, while the rest of the fire continued to blaze on. Moody has made, had made his point. We have to encourage one another. We have to stoke the fan of the flames of our faith together in order to maintain the energy and the power of our faith. It is the body of Christ working together, encouraging one another, that makes us strong. If you help me strengthen my faith, and I help you strengthen your faith, together we are better prepared to withstand the flaming arrows of the devil. We need each other. We are stronger together. We are stronger when we are unified. But the armor is not yet complete. Paul keeps telling us we need the whole armor of God, not just one piece or another. We need the whole armor. And for the believer, this includes the helmet of salvation, and we need a sword. 
The helmet of salvation, that protection, helps us to know that Christ has already won the battle on our behalf. If we have salvation, if we keep that to the forefront, it protects us, it reminds us the victory is won. And the only offensive weapon, all of these other things are meant to protect us and be a defense against the attacks of the devil. The only offensive weapon for the soldier is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this kind of of sword that is named here is a Roman sword that's about two feet long, about that wide. And it was the sword that Roman soldiers used for fighting in close combat when fighting was particularly brutal. And so the Spirit is the power that makes this sword effective. And the Word of God here is a reference to the gospel message about Jesus Christ. And so the source, it actually makes a lot of sense as a weapon. When the devil attacks us, when the devil is scheming and lying and tempting, the believer's best means of counterattack is to claim the truth of the gospel message. And Paul has already given plenty of these truths already to the Ephesians in his letter. God chose us in Christ. God destined us to become adopted as his children. We have redemption through the blood of Christ. We have an inheritance with God. God loves us. God saved us. God created us for good works. God has reconciled us to one another. We have access to the Father through the Spirit. We are being built into a dwelling place of God. And that is just the first two chapters of Ephesians. We need to be immersed in this powerful, beautiful truth of the gospel, the love of God, so that we can stand firm against the lies of the devil. And yet Paul is not done with us yet. Even though his armor language ends here with the sword of the Spirit, he urges believers to cover the battle in prayer. And so he is actually bringing his instructions full circle. He started with the command to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. But how do you do that? How do you stand strong in the Lord? What does that mean? We have to connect to God. We have to submit to the will of God. We have to know the will of God. And we have to do that through prayer. And so Paul is not talking about sort of a one and done, I said my morning prayers and don't think about God the rest of the day. But this is the kind of prayer life that talks to God and listens to God on a regular basis. That's how we stand firm in the power of God's mighty strength. And just like our armor must be worn together, so too must our prayers be offered for one another. Paul begins the whole letter by praying for the Ephesians, and then he ends by asking the Ephesians to pray for all the saints and to pray for him because he is in chains. He has been arrested for preaching the gospel. The body that wears the armor finds its strength only when it is connected to the God whose mighty strength has made the victory possible. So then Paul concludes his letter by urging the Ephesians to stand strong. He has given three important keys to doing this. The body, the armor, and the power Without the body working together to strengthen one another, gaps in the armor appear and flaming arrows slip in and wreak havoc. This Christian walk that we walk was never meant to be done alone. We need to encourage one another. We need to build one another up. And here at Asbury, you have opportunities to be part of the body, to encourage one another and to receive encouragement. Whether that's through attending an alpha class to learn more about your faith, or participating in the gather nights with your spiritual life assistant in the dorm on Monday nights or on Tuesdays for commuters, 
or you can join a banded discipleship group. But don't dismiss the importance of the larger church life as well. When you become a member of the larger church, you get to learn from little kids. You get to learn from middle-aged parents. You get to learn from the elders in the church, the saints of the church. And you know what? You get to speak into their life too. They need to hear your opinions. They need to hear your energy. They need to receive your prayers. We are stronger when we work together. We need one another. To stand strong, we need, say it with me, what do we need? The body? Say it, the body. We need the body. What else do we need? The armor. And what do we need? The power, right? So we've talked about what happens without the body. Without the armor, the armor of truth and justice, peace and faith and salvation, the spirit-empowered gospel message, we are susceptible to the lies of the devil who tells us we're, we're not loved and we have no future and we have no worth. But when we live faithfully, when we live according to God's truth, when we trust the love of God, we devote our lives to him, we discover that God's armor holds fast. And so in wearing God's armor, we pursue justice in an unjust world. We seek to love and care for the humanity that God has fought so hard to save, and we bring light into the dark places of this world. And we know right now there are so many dark places in this world. To stand strong, we need the body, the armor, and the power. Without the power of God's mighty strength, none of us will be able to accomplish this. We can't stand our own, on our own. It's that simple. It is not our power. And that's why our campus has been called to a day of prayer tomorrow. Not because, hey, it's a day off and we need rest, because it, but because it's a time that the body can come together and pray for one another, pray for the world. And it's not done at 5 o'clock tomorrow. It's a beginning of a vibrant prayer life to access the power of God, to receive the power of God, to hear God's will so that we can be empowered to work in this dark world. To withstand the evil day, to remain standing, we need the body, the armor, and the power. It's Paul's call to the Ephesians, and it is Paul's call for us here today.